Welcome to Que Pasa HSIs, a podcast dedicated to everything Hispanic serving institutions. I'm your host, Dr. Gina Ann Garcia, bringing you the news on what's happening in HSIs. Join us as we explore the history and evolution of HSIs, culturally relevant and liberatory practices, current and emerging research with HSIs, and the policies that shape servingness. Saludos, HSI familia. I'm excited to bring you the third episode of Que Pasa HSIs. As we enter the third week of Latinx and Hispanic Heritage Month, I want to remind us of the importance of honoring and acknowledging the contributions and history of Latinx, Latine, and Hispanic people across the Americas. We are here and we are proud, the people, the gente, the raza of the Americas, with all our beauty, deserve to be elevated throughout this month and throughout the year. As you continue to observe the month on your campus, I hope you are acknowledging the contributions, knowledge, history, and culture of Afro-Latinx people and Indigenous Latine people, along with your acknowledgement of us mestizo Latinxes. We are a complicated and beautiful people. As your host of Que Pasa HSIs, I'm committed to bringing you guests who represent the vast experiences and identities of Latinx and Hispanic people, as well as the co-conspirators in our community working hard to create better colleges and universities for Latinx students within HSIs. In the third episode of Que Pasa HSIs, I had the pleasure of talking to Doctora Isara Caseas Connors, who is an assistant professor of government and public administration at Texas A&M University. Her research examines the implications of DEI policies for advancing racial equity for minoritized students with a focus on state level policies. In this episode, she dives into the ways that these policies allow for or hinder institutions to focus on intersectional servingness and gives us a sneak peek of her preview our sneak preview of her evolving research that centers Afro-Latinx students. As an Afro-Latina herself, she is committed to conducting nuanced research that acknowledges the complexities of race and ethnicity along with other intersecting identities. Before joining the Bush School's Department of Public Service and Administration in 2021, Dr. Caseas Connors previously served as Associate Director for the Institute for Democracy and Higher Education at Tufts University and as an Assistant Dean for Diversity at Texas A&M University's College of Geosciences. She holds a PhD from Boston College in Higher Education and an MA from Columbia University in Higher and Post-Secondary Education and a BA from Clark University in Business Management. I was first exposed to Isara's research when I served as guest editor for her article in AERA Open entitled Constructing a Monolith, State Policy, Institutional DEI Plans, and the Flattening of Latinx Identity at Hispanic Serving Institutions, which is available in the show notes. I am now a huge fan of Isara and the amazing work she is doing and look forward to the fabulous things she will do in the future and in her higher education career. You can follow her on social media to learn more about her research and about the topics we explore in this episode. When we met for the first time to record this episode, her energy radiated. Together, we had trouble containing our excitement. I know you will feel this Latina Profesora Magia and hope you enjoy the show. I'm excited. We have Dr. Caseas Connors with us today. Thank you for taking the time to be here on Que Pasa HSIs, where we talk about all things HSIs. But before we talk about HSIs, we talk about you and your journey through higher ed, because it is a podcast for higher ed um, scholars and practitioners. So let's start with that. Tell us about your higher ed journey from access to completion. Sure. So as I think many people, most of my journey starts um, where I happen to be calling from today, which is in a tiny town in rural Maine. Um, and I grew up in this small community, but my parents were from New York City. And so and they were both lucky enough to go to college. And so my access to higher education really benefited uh, from their experiences. And also they worked in and around schools. And so they had access to folks who could help me answer questions about where I should go to college, what I should be looking at. Um, but at the same time, my own identity as a multiracial Afro-Latina uh, really shaped what I was looking for. I wanted an institution that valued racial diversity, that valued uh, diversity broadly. And so that really shaped what I was interested in and where I wanted to go. So ultimately I ended up at a small liberal arts school in Massachusetts. Um, and I was interested in kind of from a 
undergraduate degree perspective, I was interested in nonprofits and questions of equity, but I ended up being a business major. Um, so that's where <laughs> where I landed. But I was really, um, and that was really for me a time too, where I understood and started to learn about questions of advocacy and, and advocating for equity, right? So I found space for myself in the Black Student Union. Um, and I chose that as a space where I was able to thrive um, and able to advocate an institution that uh, didn't always center racially minoritized students. And so I found myself able to kind of, I think, bring those spaces together. And so that was important for me. And then you fast forward five years and I you know, work and do lots of other stuff. And then I went back to school. I went to Teachers College at Columbia to get a master's where I really wanted to kind of recenter myself around thinking about equity in higher education. At that point, I knew like what I wanted to do was understand how people get to college, how they make decisions about not coming, going to college, how they are socialized. I think that that is not a space for them. Um, and I was curious about those questions. And I was curious about how policy shapes those questions. So I really went into this thinking about big policies. So I spent a lot of time in master's kind of curious about questions like performance-based funding and other big policy questions but that weren't at the time, I think really centering for me, my work wasn't centering kind of racial equity. And that was still underpinning all of my interests there. I was thinking, what's happening here? Um, and so I, I completed my master's, thought about staying on for a PhD, decided again to go back into the workforce. And then you take another five-year jump uh, and I entered a PhD. Uh, I went to Boston College and that was really where I think also my own exploration into HSIs, into questions of racial equity in higher education really kind of started to dig in. And that was where I kind of think about how I started to kind of become what kind of and think about the work that I'm doing right now. Um, and so, you know, so that's kind of, I graduated in 2020. So that's, I think, the end of my traditional or kind of formal education setting. I, I always think, you know, I have a daughter and she'll ask me, I'll tell her I learn something new every day. And so, right, so in some respects, I enjoy that and I continue to kind of, that's part of what I love about what I do is that there's always something new to, to explore, to understand, to unpack. And so that tells you a little bit about how I got here, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And also how you came to ask the questions that you ask in your research. So, which is why I love asking the higher journey yeah. question, because it, it our, our, our experiences inform what we do, right? And, our, mm -hmm. and they inform the questions we ask and the research that we do. Um, so, so thank you for that. I was also a business major. So um, people always think that's weird. I'm like, why? I <laughs> wanted to make money. I don't know. And then I ended up in education. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought it made sense. And my dad said, go get a business degree. So I did, you know, yep, it's like yep. you make decisions and, and we keep learning along the way, you know, what we mm -hmm. want to ultimately do. But yes. yeah, I'll fail you on that. So you mentioned a little bit about, um, you know, getting to starting to understand HSIs. And um, so I want to know your serving this journey. How did you, how did HSIs come into your consciousness? Yeah. So, so I will say I had many kind of career trajectories and paths before getting to graduate school, right? And so I, I really think of my HSI and kind of serving this journey, really starting in my doctoral work. So when I got to BC, I think I was really, that was the moment where I was really clear that this was my time to identify the questions that were of interest to me. Previously, I'd been doing research at research institutes and other spaces where I was driven by, I think, a broader agenda, let's say. And so this was a chance for me to really uh, center in on what I was interested in. And I I continued also at that time, and I still continue to this day, to be really interested in the nexus of kind of state, federal, and institutional policy, and how those all come together and how they inform each other, um, and how the, at times, state policies have sweeping implications that we don't necessarily always think about the implementation of those, right? And so what's happening at the institution. And so I, I was really interested in that. I also uh, was really continued to be interested in Latinx students understanding uh, the institutions that were serving them. So of course, naturally HSIs become a part of that conversation. Um, and I will say that part of what was interesting to me and we can continue to assess that interests me is, is the ways in which sometimes that notion of who was 
who was a part of that notion of Latinidad and Latinx, and Latinx students was a centralist. And so I was really interested in how institutions pushed against that when they had the opportunity or how they might reproduce that. Um, and so that was part of really, I think, what got me here to these questions. I have since uh, my role most recently and kind of currently I'm at Texas A&M University. And so really that was an opportunity to now be at working at an HSI. They, Texas A&M was just identified, right? So we're um, recognized as an HSI. So we are, working through that conversation of what does that mean next? Um, uh, and how do we center that in our conversations, let's say. But um, yeah, so that's kind of a little bit of how I got here to in terms of thinking about HSIs. Mm -hmm. right. um, another question of, along your journey and how you got to where you're at, I wanted to, to you to talk about, um, you have your PhD in higher education, but you're not in a higher ed or in an ed school now currently mm -hmm. as, an, as an assistant professor. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I don't think people can always make that connection of like, my degree's in ed, but I, I, you don't have to ultimately end up in it at school. So talk a little uh, bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of that is, a, is about my trajectory. So Ray, so I, my first job out of undergraduate was I worked in, I worked in higher ed. I did alumni relations and development. I did that for about five years until I went back to get my master's, right? So I did work. I worked um, at a couple different institutions doing both fundraising, but also doing work with students. Um, and so part of what that did was give me some exposure to, to the nonprofit world more broadly, right? Because there's that intersection um, between in philanthropy. And so, so that kind of framed some of my own experiences. Um, I also, when I was a master's student, worked for the New Jersey Community College Association, so the New Jersey Council of County Colleges. And so they're a policy-focused group, right? So so these types of experiences are often things that I lean, lean on when I think about uh, what I do now. And so that is to say that I work at a school of public service administration. We train students to do public policy, to do uh, local governance, to do be public administrators in a certain way, as well as nonprofit professionals, right? So my, the, all of this trajectory really comes together to kind of provide students with a lot of intersecting kind of points where they can say, okay, Isada, can, I, can you talk to me about fundraising and alumni relations, and I can bring in that conversation because we are primarily a master's uh, program and we're paying students for a professional degree. And so they're thinking about how they bring that to the workforce. And so helping them uh, make that leap is, is helpful. Um, and so our students, where I teach among our students, I teach methods classes, right? So research methods, I also teach education policy, right? And there's a real demand for all of these pieces. So I think as higher education researchers, there is a real need and an importance for this type of work in these types of you know public administration and public policy spaces. Because because we bring an interesting, I think, lens to that conversation, uh, as well as allowing students other entry points or other ways to think about what they might do with their degree. And I think that that's important. Yeah, so that's a little bit about how I ended up kind of here in the distinctly, not in the higher ed program, but in a PA, public service administration department, which allows me, I think, to connect with a whole host of students, which is something I really appreciate as well, because I think about my own work and the ways in which whether it's you know qual methods or, or ed policy we're thinking about questions of racial equity and then that permeates back right if you're going to be a local government administrator i want you to think about these conversations if you are working in your local community you're likely going to interact with a local community college understanding how that is operate and understanding the value that you may learn in this class really i think for me is part of the the benefit to this type of uh, program and to teach you this type of program so it's been really fun Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And what you say about like, you know, you're training people who are going to go out and work in, in communities that are need to be equity minded and equity oriented. And what a great place to do that work right in the in the school that you're in and, and in the public policy space. So, um, so yeah, so thank you for sharing that because I think people, you know, we get sort of like tracked into thinking we can only get like one type of job once we get a PhD in a certain area. Um, but it's not true, right? Where our work is informing lots of different uh, disciplines and areas. So I think that's great. So let's talk a little bit about your research, starting with your, your dissertation. Um, I know dissertations are big and we don't always publish all the things. So, you know, tell us just briefly about some of your dissertation uh, titled Examining Racial Discourse and Diversity Policies at Hispanic Serving Institutions. Um, you know, the little short version of, of what you find. Yeah. So, right. So as the title kind of alludes to, I was interested in statewide DEI policy. So I came to this work because I, I remember I read a story about the SUNY State University of York. They had 
published, a, they adopted a DEI policy in 2015. I said, oh, tell me more about this. What are these policies? And so I started to get interested in that. Um, and I was really uh, curious to understand how uh, these statewide policies were informing institutional discourse. How were institutions using these as a as a time to think about and reflect on their work related to racial equity um, and, and how might they be serving more as a, an important but um, maybe less impactful kind of performative tool, right? And so I was kind of interested in what, what was happening, what were folks saying in them? <laughs> in the end of the day, I was kind of curious, what are they talking about? What are they presenting as their narrative for DEI and for racial equity? So I ended up looking across three states that at the time had not the same, but kind of a similar landscape, and they allowed for some comparison. So looked at the California Community Colleges, Florida Public Higher Education, and then the SUNY institutions. The California Community Colleges, I ended up taking a sample because, as we know, the vast majority are HSIs, and so as a result, I was not in a capacity to, to look at all of them. And so I have a small sample of those at 10 institutions. Uh, all I took all of the public HSIs from Florida, and then also at the time there were four HSIs within the SUNY system. So those institutions comprise the sample. They're predominantly community colleges. Um, and so ultimately across those, I was interested right, in how they constructed a narrative of diversity, but also in doing so, how did they kind of construct a narrative of Latinx students and what did that mean for kind of a racialized Latinx identity? So really the findings kind of mirror what some of what I've published, which we can talk about in the ARI Open, but it's kind of some of the um, ways in which the framing of diversity becomes so broad that it that obscured in that conversation and the institutions are focusing uh, on many populations that have not been historically marginalized within higher education. I also found that these documents, when they do talk about racially minoritized populations, are engaging language of at risk and disadvantaged in ways in which they're not really thinking about the assets and value and capacities that, that racially minoritized students might bring. And when they talk about Latinx students, it's often conflated with low income and first gen, right? So they use them all interchangeably, right? So, so as a result, they they really essentialize what is, they're not really thinking about these nuances um, of, of the Latinx population, but also more broadly of um, racially minoritized students within their states. Uh, I think in, in addition to that, part of what I was interested in is how the state policies frame these documents. And we really do see the ways in which the state data systems constrict some of this kind of framing, right? They present the data, these institutions rely on states to provide the data and there's kind of this feedback mechanism that means that they're primarily focusing on race and gender data as their metrics for diversity with California being an exception in that conversation. But nonetheless, they're focusing on these uh, on this, but one, not from any intersectional perspective, even on that very small dimensionality, but also, um, advancing programs, strategies, and goals that aren't tied to that. So we, they might talk about their advancements in the number of um, Latinx students enrolled. And I think we should absolutely problematize that as a metric for success, right? We know right, there's much more that goes into that, but that might be what they rely on, but then they're not talking of their enrollment programs are about going to all high schools. So they might miss that kind of the coupling of that. And so you see that emerge and then these institutions were selected because they're HSIs, right? So I was very interested to see how, if at all, this became an opportunity to leverage or advance the conversation about their HSI that the designation, utilizing that as a, as a uh, galvanizing tool, something to kind of talk about this. And generally, I found that it was under, we'll say, utilized as a conversation, as a part of the um, framing. Uh, those institutions that did discuss it, there are spaces, and I can draw on examples where they did kind of try to really think about uh, those folks that, and thinking about their HSI designation and the staffing there that was supporting that. But generally, it tends to obscure that. Um, and so the in the dissertation in the end, I kind of present some, some also some thinking through for policymakers in terms of if you're thinking about these statewide DEI policies and their utility. I tend to think there's still power in these spaces. Someone, people are spending time and energy to produce these reports. Um, and in talking, in addition to the documents that I reviewed, I also talked to stakeholders, both at the state and institution level. So I have, so in those conversations, I'm talking to folks that are really trying to leverage this for positive change. So I think there's actually a real space to really empower those folks to say, listen, this is, can be an important galvanizing tool. If you're sitting down 
every point in the year and thinking about what are we doing to advance these goals? How do we make sure that that is an effective and use and good use for the institution, right? So what does it mean then to use that as a space to really center marginalized communities? What does it mean to, to link your goals to those programmatic outcomes and to make sure that they're thinking about these things? So I, I kind of tend to think about that not as to say that, oh, it's all hope is lost, but to say there's, there's folks are doing this work. They're coming together. And I've talked to folks that care deeply about doing that work. So I'm saying, so my hope is that we, it serves as a tool for folks to elevate some of this and to really push forward an, uh, an agenda that really centers racial equity. And so that's uh, both what I found and some of what I kind of think through in terms of policy implications going forward. So what might that look like uh, in terms of different accountability structures, other metrics, uh, promoting the work. So a lot of that is about promoting the work and giving folks resources to do it. Mm -hmm. Wow, that was an excellent summary. Now we don't have to go read the long dissertation, although I'm nerdy and I want to go read it now. I'm like, oh, there's so much there. So much that you like dug into that um, I don't think a, a lot of HSI researchers are doing. And I, not that I know every article or dissertation being written, but uh, you know, you're you're doing this really important work that like we aren't looking at the intersections of like what's going on at the state level policy that and how does it interact with the federal policy. I mean, HSI is a federal, it's a policy, right? That could go away, right? And and, and that needs to have that conversation uh is important, right? Of like, and what does the federal policy say and what does the state policy say? And how do they interact, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. to, yep. and, and, and there's not a lot going on with, um, in, from my perspective, uh, as far as like research with that. So I'm, I'm glad you are doing that work and I look forward to more publications coming <laughs> soon. But first let's talk about AERA Open because um, that one is available. And, um, you know, definitely how I, I really dug, was able to dig into your work. Um, so in your article, it's called, for those listening, Constructing a Monolith State Policy Institutional DEI Plans and the Flattening of Latinx identity at Hispanic serving institutions published in our in our in our um, special issue or special uh, they don't call it an issue what do they call it special topic <laughs> um, of AERA open about intersectionality um, and you you really dig into right these state how the state DEI policies influence um, serving this so talk to us a little bit about that about the actual implementation right of the of those DEI policies and how it either comes up for people as part of serving this or not. Yeah. Yeah. So as you said, like, I was really interested um, and that paper gave me a chance to think about not only how thinking about the state policy, the, the discourse within the state policy, but also the discourse that's available within the implementation guidance. So we start to think, right, so you move from this policy has been constructed in the case of Florida and California, they've been around for a very long time in comparison to SUNY, right? So these are legacy policies in some respect in those two cases. Um, but the ways in which those implementation uh, documents or the policies themselves shape how institutions take up and make meaning of that call, right? What they are supposed to do. Um, and so in particular, we see a couple of things that unfold there. So thinking about the implementation guidance that comes, right? So each state, particularly Florida and California, have some what more prescriptive frameworks under which the data is considered. Um, I, I highlight in the case of Florida, the ways in which the construction of racial categories, racial ethnic categories within the data uh, obscure broad cross-sections of folks. And so as a result, uh, challenge institutions to center racial equity when the data that they're pre pre uh, provided uh, limits that opportunity for them, right? So, so thinking about how these data systems, um, despite, I would argue, the policy documents themselves, really calling on institutions to, to think about racial equity, right? If we think about the ways in which they've defined, we can think of the policy problem or the ways in which they've defined the rationale for this policy, racial equity is squarely there. But how that then ultimately gets interpreted, and I think we can understand that not only through um, kind of the, the ways in which the data is presented, but through the broader kind of socio-political landscapes in which these states are operating, which is policies are being produced, right? And so the ways in which these institutions navigate, um, particularly because we're talking here again about public HSIs, right? So we're talking about institutions that are very much in, op, in conversation with and need to be understood in conversation with that state policy political landscape. And so 
so what you see is the ways in which those get um, taken up is can be quite different. Um, and so I think in, in converse in part of that conversation is the is understanding also the ways in which, as you talked about, the ways in which this federal designation, which you know, in the paper kind of talk about the ways in which that racializes a set of institutions that has historically saw themselves and and operated and thought about whites, right? And so how does what does that mean then if an institution becomes an HSI um, through through enrollment, as we all know, right? Through a shifting demographic landscape in many of these contexts as well. And um, and then must grapple with what does it mean to serve those students? And so, you know, part of what I was interested in was not only kind of thinking about the ways in which these kind of macro level state policies that can be understood at kind of that meso-organizational level and what are the implications for that? And what are the implications if we also then draw and understand these institutions as racialized organizations? So what does it mean if we understand that that's and how we frame these organizations and then understand what we might, what it might mean to enact a framing of servingness in that landscape? Because if we need to understand the context in order to be able to empower folks to, to enact what I many times think is the vision that they aspire for, I, I think I do believe that folks want to do and center Latinx students, they want to serve students well, um, but folks are, we're operating in a whole host of contexts. And so we have to acknowledge that. I think if we, if we try to remove that, then we miss the ways in which behavior in, and in this case, discourse unfolds uh, at institutions. And so, so I think that's a part of what this uh, work hopes to unpack. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, 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 you keep talking about the context, right? And I, I think one of my favorite parts of that article is the sample, right, where you really show that these three states, they look very, very different. And the policies, the state level policies are very different. And like, you know, you said legacy policies and two out of the three and, and, and we don't necessarily talk about that at this high level federal policy HSI, you know, conversation that the state level is, it, it dictates, right? People sometimes defer to the state over what the federal policy might say. Um, so I, I love that you, you know, you provided that and it got me really thinking about those, those three states alone and how mm -hmm. they're very unique, right? And doing HSI work in different states is going to look very different. Yeah, I'm excited to think, right? And I think for us to start thinking about about HSI work more broadly in that, and and val and thinking about that state policy implications to help us kind of nuance some of that HSI conversation because I think um, particularly if then you start to look at HSIs and emerging HSIs, you can start to find clusters of institutions almost everywhere, and then you can start to mm -hmm. you know, and then you can start to have these conversations that uh, allow us to look at these different cases and consider how that state policy landscape shapes that. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things with that special issue was we really wanted to know about intersectionality, right? We're like, that's, that's for me and, and, you know, my colleague, Dr. Marcella Cuellar, when we, you know, when we decided to put that call out, that was a, a real, there's a real gap in HSI research. We're not, we're, we're conflating, us as researchers are conflating the H, right? In the, in the, in HSI. Um, and in practice, I see it. People are very much conflating the H to mean one thing and we know it's not, right? It's not a monolith. So, um, you know, any thoughts on that and, and what you talked about in the paper and what came out right in this policy work at the state level um, as far as whether or not intersectionality is or is not happening? Yeah, so, so I talk a little bit about, so one of the largest kind of threads that emerged throughout these documents beyond kind of the characterizations of data is the ways in which folks talk about uh, advancing their DEI objectives, right? So how are they advancing the goals in response to this policy? And so one way to look at and can see how institutions are considering a more intersectional kind of framework for Latinx students or how are they considering Latinx students is to look at these these programmatic implementation strategies, right? And so I, I think what you see in through these three cases or three state contexts is different ways in which institutions center Latinx students, but then in some ways in which they're starting to think about some of the kind of the diverse identities that students bring, that Latinx students bring, right? The ways in which presenting a single narrative is going to do a disservice to the student population. So you see some institutions talking about the intersection 
of Latinx identity and immigration. You see conversations about intersections between language. Uh, you see con some conversations in terms of teaching and learning about how we center Latinx narratives. But importantly, and that not just how do we kind of set, we could recenter a monolithic notion of Latinx students, or we can think about that from a more intersectional framing. So how they choose to do that becomes important, I think, and a good, indicator of how they're thinking about intersectionality, right? It's a it's one metric or one space within these plans that institutions have a lot of latitude. It's also, again, it's, it's a space where institutions have a lot of latitude. Uh, we all know that these institutions are doing a lot of work, right? There are, and, and there are many elements they could choose to highlight, um, but they are, but their choices there may also help us understand what they're seeing as important in their effort to address racial equity. And so it is, there's choice making that happens there and that choice making is often politicized. And so I think we also have to acknowledge that as well, but uh, it helps us potentially get some insight into what's happening. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, ooh, that choice making is so important. I think about that because um, I, 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 you know, I go talk to institutions and I'm like, put, you know, anti-racism in your, in your HSI grant and put Afro-Latinos are going to be, you know, the framing. And I mean, I throw all kinds of stuff at them. Right. And they're like, but the call says these really, you know, <laughs> monolithic yeah. things, right? Like, and, yes. the, and they're not, the call isn't calling for that. And they, they worry, right? Like people that are writing those grants are like, but the federal grant doesn't want that. <laughs> they're not asking us to put all those really super progressive sort of things in, right? And choice matters when it comes to policy and, and how you're going to implement it. So, yeah. Yeah. And you've brought up a good point. So as a, as that I've been thinking about a lot more is this question of the, what the federal policy tells us to prioritize, we'll say, mm -hmm. right. Where, how we read into that. Right. And mm -hmm. then what uh, we may want to do, right. They may hear you talk to you and they're like, yeah, Gina, I'm with you. I want to do, I want, I want that. Right. But they're but their attention, they're at odds. And so this is another place in which is manifest. Right. So the federal policy is there. There is concern about whether that federal policy is providing space for that or that's what they're interested in. Right. We all know grant writing is about that process of what are folks interested in. And then you have institutions kind of grappling with the desire to push the envelope, but the desire to get the resources, because as much as we can problematize the. And I kind of talk a little bit about the ways in which the conversation about the HSI identity is often just purely linked to funding. And I think that there's real problematic notions in that because it doesn't move us beyond kind of a long-term vision of serving this, or it's this very short-term kind of thinking about, okay, how do we get the grant, get the money in? And I remember talking to one practitioner and he said, listen, I lead with the money because it gets me in the door, but I know it's not the end, right? But he's like, but I don't know that everyone else knows that I'm playing a long game, right? And I, and so how do you know, how do you kind of do, balance that dueling need for resources, particularly, you know, a lot of my sample work, community colleges, right? So how do we deal with that need for resources alongside um, a real desire to have a long-term strategy that centers students in a different way? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. Ooh, that money piece is so important when it comes to this work because people do, you know, sort of lead with the money and the and the grants. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, the hope is that you have these more critical folks that are, are actually doing the work and implementing that say, we're leading with that, but we're actually going to do equity work or going to do anti-racism. We're going to do, you know, like that, that kind of those freedom dreams that I, that I talk about and think about when it comes to serving this. Um, and I think it's happening. I, I feel like you're an optimist like me. Like, I'm like, it's happening. People are trying really hard to do this work. Um, and yeah, it's slow because it's higher ed. <laughs> so it takes time, you know, it takes time, but, but people are genuinely try trying right like yeah. they actually are um so I'm glad you, you know, you said that because I, I think it's true. We have to acknowledge that, that important work that's going on. Mm -hmm. So for the fans listening that you have hopefully some new fans that are like, ooh, let me see what else is going on. And I'm me as a fan, what's, what's going on in the lab? What are we expecting to, to drop next, either from your dissertation or, or other projects you're working on? Yeah, so I, I think I'm always like, I wish I had a drop date, but you know, the publication does, world doesn't operate like that. Like, nope. we don't have nope. time. Nope. Nope. <laughs> We're going to slow drips and drabs. And, you know, I think about folks with a splashy flat, like drop date. Um, so I've not, none of that, but I've got some exciting work that I'm excited to talk about. So one, but one, you can, folks who are tuning in, can come see our presentation at ASH. And so a uh, colleague and I, uh, 
Daryl Wardesterano here at a &M. We are using discourse tracing to look at communications that emerge at three emerging HSIs um, within the UT system, the University of Texas system. So we're interested in how the relationship really between this kind of macro large uh, conversation and the measures of the kind of institutional conversation related to HSI identity and how they craft this HSI identity with intentionality, think about servingness, all of these pieces, right? But looking at how that emerges over time. So we've looked back at data for um, the past like a five-year period of these emerging HSIs and some of them like UT Austin have become an HSI in that period. And so we're able to kind of look at that discourse and think about kind of that narrative. And so we're excited to kind of think about both the how uh, discourse evolves over time as it relates to the HSI identity, but also what I'm particularly interested in if we go back to this conversation about state policy and state policy actors is to think about the role of the state system, right? So these are three institutions that operate within a single state university system. And I'm wondering, as we start to see more institutions like these that are part of state systems that start to, that are becoming HSIs or an emerging HSI, how, if at all, does the state system play a role? We've seen some work uh, from folks talking about state boards and other state system actors as it relates to DEI, but what is their role, if at any, in this HSI conversation? So will they advance a certain narrative of, of HSI servingness? Uh, do they uh, not talk about this at all? Is that left to the institution? Uh, and I'm curious in part because I'm interested in how state boards operate, but I'm also curious because I think if we think, so the UT system is kind of one example, but there are other systems where there's more institutional diversity as well in terms of uh, community college, regional institutions, flagship institutions. And I think there may be also potential and opportunity for greater collaboration and kind of uplift of that, of a broader community, right? So if we're working towards a shared goal, then potentially there's an opportunity for the system to play a role. So I'm kind of excited to think about that work. So we will be presenting at least a part of that at ASH. And so I'm excited to do that. Um, and the second piece is, is an extension of my dissertation, but in a different kind of slightly different direction. So uh, right, as I shared, uh, one of the states that I looked at was the SUNY system. Um, and so what I've actually taken, SUNY had a relatively small number of institutions that identified as HSIs at the time of the policy implementation, but there were other emerging HSIs and institutions that I'm kind of tentatively calling almost emerging HSIs, like they're just on the cusp, they're the, that percentage point behind or so. And so again, looking at the implications of state policy in those spaces and trying to understand, because one thing that was a bit distinct in the SUNY system is the way that the policy is constructed, and I think in part because it's a newer policy. There are policy elements that really drive the conversation. For example, all SUNY institutions need to have a chief diversity officer. So in the policy language and in the centering of racial minoritized students, what you also see is that is an accountability element from institutional leadership, both presidents and chief diversity officers. That's a bit distinct in those SUNY institutions. You also, from the SUNY institutions, there's a little bit more of a conversation because there is not a rigid data landscape, more conversation about intersectionality, more conversations about who are our Latinx students, right? Like, what does that mean? And empowering, I think, a whole host of folks um, who operate on campuses to be a part of that conversation, right? So, that, so then again, kind of speaking to this notion of the kind of a broader group of Latinx students. So I'm excited to kind of look across these institutions and think about how this newer policy really played out and kind of focus on that uh, as well. So that's, those are some HSI pieces. And if, and I also, there is a piece out on just on Florida. So if anyone's interested in digging into Florida, there's a, something to read to, which I found the Florida case fascinating. And that compares the, uh, two and four year landscape, which I think are slightly different. Okay. Oh, that one's already published. Where's that one at? Yes. Yeah. Um, education policy analysis archives. Okay. There we go. We'll drop it in the show notes, but thank mm -hmm. you for the preview on what's coming. I will be at your ash presentation. It sounds yeah. fascinating. So I'll, I'll I'm going to put it on my schedule for sure. <laughs> um, but all just super important work that like, there's a huge gap in this area of research that you're doing. So I, I mean, I, I appreciate it. I think we, we need it, right. We need um, this state level. Look, you mentioned state boards, like when it comes to HSIs, that there, there, there hasn't been a conversation in, in research 
which means maybe it's not in practice either. I don't know, right? Because it's not my area. So I, I don't know for sure, but I, I have a feeling it's not. <laughs> Serviness isn't necessarily happening at that state board level, um, but it has to, right? We're talking about an entire organizational sort of shift that needs support at every level, including at the state. So I'm excited about that. Um, you also have in your bio that you're starting to do some work um, around centering Afro-Latinx students within higher ed. Any, any thoughts on that? What's what's coming down the pathways yeah. in, that, in that area? Yeah, so I think unsurprisingly, anyone who's going to watch this conversation unfold, that's a part of kind of my interest area and where I've wanted to go. And so um, right, I came to this work around uh, HSIs, really around questions of kind of essentialization in that space. And so I've been doing a project uh, one project with a colleague looking at sense of belonging, and particularly we're kind of from a, interested in how we can use lap crit and multi crit to think about um, Afro Latinx students, and is there space for that? Um, and pushing back in ways that there's not, right? So thinking about kind of this theoretical space and how do we expand that? And so uh, Vanessa Gonlin and I are doing that work and to kind of think about that work going forward. And then also, um, what's broadly missing from this conversation is an understanding of where Afro Latinx students are involved, uh, where they're not, uh, where there are large uh, population centers of Afro-Latinx folks and are the institutions serving in that space, right? So we can think in a more kind of granular space about that. And so uh, Amalia Dache and I are starting to think through how might we merge other data alongside some of the enrollment data in a few states where they do have some of that data available. And so how can we think through uh, what does that mean to serve Afro-Latinx students? Where are those students enrolling? And then how are institutions taking up and thinking through the different ways in which they may need to center uh, Afro-Latinx students. And so that's a uh, part of that work as well. So I'm excited to keep that work going forward. Awesome. And so we often think about research as the me-search, although I think it's more than that. Um, is any of that driven by like your own identities, like as an Afro-Latina identified, um, you know, person? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So I, you know, if I think about my own narrative, I think I'm, I'm really interested in, in the ways in which uh, um, Afro-Latinas are part, Afro-Latinx folks are part of the conversation around, around Latinidad and the ways in which that has been obscured or not, um, the ways in which Blackness is obscured in that conversation as well, and the ways in which we think about who's included in our conversations. Um, I really think about a lot of my HSI origins and my path through um, um, is, is a, actually a conversation about race and questions about race and racial identity. And so to me, that's kind of what underpins some of my interests. Um, and so I think there are elements of my own identity in terms of my own racial identity that are important. And, but also in, in many ways, I think some of this dovetails with kind of being growing up in a rural community, because I think about mm. being in a space of where you are not reflected. And so I think that that really kind of thinking about the implications for students. Um, and as I said, I, as a college student, I engaged uh, and sought kind of community in the Black Student Union. Although there were, of course, many kind of Latinx students organizations on campus, those weren't spaces that felt right for me. And so I think it's important to kind of acknowledge that and say, listen, I kind of grapple with that as I think about, even as I think about policy and the implications for who's there and how do we present a narrative of who we're enrolling uh, at a very simplistic level. Right? We, again, I can talk about all the flaws with even that kind of very basic conversation, but how do we know and think about a more nuanced perspective? Um, and I think understanding those racial identities is important for, for Latinx folks. Absolutely. And I'm gl glad you've joined forces with one of my Edmanas, Dr. Amalia Dache, who's doing obviously amazing work. So I know y'all going to keep keep pushing us to think more critically because it's true. We have to think about these in much more uh, nuanced ways, right? Identity is is very nuanced, um, particularly when we're thinking about whether or not we're going to serve people or whether people feel like they belong or want to be at a place, right? At, at, at an institution of higher ed. Um, so I'm glad. I'm glad to hear you. Y'all are joining first forces. I'm going to stay tuned for more. <laughs> More to come, for sure. More to come. So in your practice, um, beyond your research, you also do this work in practice, or you, you have, right? You've served in various roles, including serving as an assistant dean for diversity um, at Texas A&M University's College of Geosciences. Um, so what ways uh, does your research with HSIs and statewide policies and equity um, influence your practice, or has it you know, been able to influence your practice? 
Yeah. So I, I, I think one of the more interesting things is I started the dissertation. I was doing work as a, kind of a research to practice doing work that was not really kind of squarely related to HSIs. Or, um, and so I was doing research, but in a very different capacity. And midway through, I did transition to this, this practice role where um, I found myself in the position of writing a, a, a basically our DEI plan, right? So writing this response. So I, I really think about, and I'm sensitive to, and I think in a different way than I had been when I started out my dissertation, uh, to the limitations, right? The policy practice, kind of some of the challenges that folks face in that. And so, so I think in some respects, that practice very clearly informs my scholarship in terms of uh, how I frame what uh, what is happening, uh, how we kind of contextualize the limitations that are thrust upon practitioners who are, as I said, I think desiring to do good work, right? And so, but we operate in these landscapes, and uh, and I know that, and and I think we all knew know that, but having sat in that space and had to um, kind of advocate for elevating certain narratives, I think that that's uh, and, and advancing certain types of programming. Um, I think that that's important to think about. Um, but I was also able to really draw on a lot of the great HSI research to say, okay, if we want to do work that is supporting Latinx students and faculty in particular as a large part of my focus, then why don't we take a look at the evidence-based work out there. And so I was, I found myself in a position of really being able to say, here is what we know. Here are some great practices. That's, here's what we think is maybe working and supporting students and particularly um, the role of faculty in that conversation um, and bringing that to the conversation. So for me, that was really fun to be able to leverage and think about that. I also had the kind of distinct kind of opportunity in the sense that at the time that I was doing this work, um, Emory Nunez was also shifting and doing some work on geosciences. And so while it's not always geosciences or STEM and HSIs. I think the intersection, right, I was able to kind of draw some of this work together to say, okay, here's an HSI researcher and here's someone who's also doing geoscience work. And here's how we put these two pieces together. And so that's been really fun for me to kind of draw that work together um, and to kind of, and hopefully uh, bring that research into conversation with administrators, right? Who you were, geoscientists, right, who folks who are phenomenal oceanographers and atmospheric scientists, um, but have spent less time thinking about HSI literature and how do we support Latinx students. So it was a fun opportunity. I really, I really had a great time doing that with colleagues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't even thought about the connections with uh, Anne-Marie's work. Yeah. Um, and I know her, her work with, you yeah. know, geosciences and HSIs. Um, but I, I think you're right. Like those folks are, are some of the folks that I hope will listen to these podcasts, right? The series of podcasts that, that you know, we're, that are going to come out, this Get Pasa HSIs, folks who haven't thought about serving us because they're, they're, they're phenomenal researchers in other ways, um, but haven't had that opportunity to even dive into some of this um, literature. So, so, you know, listen to an hour podcast, 45 minute podcast, and and learn about some of these um, things and the way we're thinking about it, right? Because we are we are thinking critically about it. Those of us that are, are doing this work, and there's lots of us um, really doing this work. So um, I'm glad you're able to, to see those connections, which I'm going to ask you about in a second. But first, I want to know now that you're at an HSI as a professor, um, which I um, I'm so like my heart hurts because I think about how I teach at a white institution and I do all this HSI research, and I'm like, one day I'm going to be a professor at an HSI. Um, but how does that come into your, you know, your your classroom as you're, as you're thinking about, you know, teaching and being a faculty member at an HSI? What are you thinking about as far as like how that comes into play as well, right? That servingness should look different um, in a faculty role. Yeah. And so I think that that's really interesting. And it's been interesting for me in this past year of, as I've navigated kind of more broadly thinking about how do we center, how do I work to center students, particularly students who are really passionate about questions of racial equity, who may not always find space for those conversations. And so how do I, we make, build a, an ability to have those conversations and to in, engage that um, and support students. But also for me, if we think about kind of some of the HSI, what does it mean to work at an HSI? One of the pieces I still always kind of perpetually go back to is this question of, well, how do I really, let me really understand our students because the demographic data that we tend to, to put up on the slide at the start of the year really tells me just one narrow sliver of a student. And I, and so for me, 
I approach this, and for me, it becomes really important, particularly when I think about supporting Latinx students, is thinking about, I want to know more. I want to really understand the identities that you bring into the space, what you hope to get, and where you want to go, and to be a space for supporting that. Um, but for me, that becomes really important, um, because I think, yeah, there's the, there's the flashy slide that we've all seen at the start, whether it's at your college or your department, right? It all comes up. We all know that number, but we don't, we need something more in order to be able to serve students where they're at. Um, and I, you know, trying to figure out ways to do that. I really find myself kind of perpetually kind of inspired and kind of adoring my students because at the end of the day, they ask hard questions. They push me <laughs> to do things, to think differently. They push me to kind of engage in these questions, right? They want to have conversations that they want to have more conversations that center racial equity and think about Latinx students. And so pushing me to say, where are we doing that? How are we having more of that? Um, and I'm lucky I teach education policy and qualitative methods. It's, I mean, I tell folks that's what we're talking about. So <laughs> we're doing it one or another. So, so it's good. But I think, um, you know, I think I've been really thinking about that. And then more broadly, Right, I think here at a and we are now, I think, coming into our own in terms of thinking about where do we go from here? It is not as though A&M has not served a large number of Latinx students for a very long time. But how uh, does this, uh, I, I think about this a little bit. So there's, you know, that for me, like the policy window, like there's that moment where you can enact policy. Well, so this is the moment where I think the institution can leverage the, the federal designation to do more, right? And so I think we're at this point where, there's this window. How do we really think deeply about what that means? And, and in doing so, there is no shortage of legacy of, of practice and research and kind of institutional knowledge about how we support Latinx students. How do we elevate that? That's been, I think, a real call for folks to know that this work is happening on your campus, even if it's not in the in the spotlight. Um, people are, people care and people have been trying to answer some of these questions or trying to support Latinx students or, um, but so how do we elevate that and bring those folks to the forefront is I think really important for, for our work going forward. So, so that's been also very exciting. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So like, I think a lot about Texas and being an HSI in Texas and how it could be challenging to teach or to do DEI work or to become an HSI in Texas because, you know, pol the policies, right? A political context. So is that, have you seen that in your practices so far um, that, that sometimes it's hard to do this work in Texas or is that just me projecting on Texas? So, so here's what I'll say. I think that particularly as I think about the students that we serve, we have a lot of students who are yearning for, to be seen, to really want an institution who is centering their experiences um, and understanding that serving an increasing and growing number of Latinx students is going to look different than when it looked like, what the institution may have looked like 20 years ago. Mm. And so how do we grapple with that, I think, is the challenge. And I think we can look to a lot of like organizational literature to talk about change and organizational mm. change and how challenging that is. And so I think to say that this work is easy would be a, a misstatement, but to say mm. that there are a lot of people who care deeply about doing the right thing for our students, I think we have... I would be remiss if I didn't say that. Mm. Right? I have a lot of colleagues who care deeply about doing the right thing for students. Um, we're trying to figure out what that means. Um, but it is challenging. I think we have to acknowledge, right? I'm, I'm very clear that the DEI policy landscape, the state sociopolitical, the political landscape in a state shapes how that discourse emerges. It's particularly when we're thinking about discourse. And so how we think about how institutions talk about racial equity, talk about serving Latinx students in Texas is likely going to look different. And so we have to acknowledge the policy landscape for sure. Mm -hmm. I like that. Thank you. I'm going to use that next time I'm in Texas. <laughs> Instead of saying, y'all, <laughs> y'all in Texas, come on, y'all get it together. I know. Yeah. It's not, you know, right. I think this is it. We got to figure out I, I remind myself that I have students and they're, and they're fighting hard. Mm -hmm. And I think that if if we as the faculty and staff leave them without mm -hmm. and don't fight as hard, right? Mm -hmm. We, um, it's a disservice to them. And I, um, to imagine, you know, be 20 and fighting that fight is hard. 
Uh, and so I think it's, it's on all of us to figure out ways to not put it by the wayside. I also think that one thing to think about as we think about Texas is, you know, Texas A&M is just an HSI, just becoming an HSI. What they've been serving flat next students for decades, right? So I think sometimes this use of the HSI designation as this kind of somehow emergence of a student population, I don't want to, I don't want to kind of present that as the narrative either, right? We have long legacies of students. Um, we need to center students differently, but we want to also remember and acknowledge these kind of legacies as, uh, here as well, because if not, it dismisses that conversation as well. It's not as though folks emerged here. Um, uh, out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> they just came out of nowhere one day now. Mm -hmm. And yeah, thank so you for saying that. Part, yeah, <laughs> we have to remember that these students have been here and they're going to, and they're, yeah, and we need to do better. We need to serve them well. That's our, that's their expectation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's a fair one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, to refer back to policy, um, the HSI policy is 25%. That's massive. 25% is a lot of students. Um, HSI is the only designation that is has the specific designation that are uh, enrollment that high, right? Black serving is 10%. AAPI, Anapesi is 10%. 25% is, is a lot. By the time you hit 25%, if you didn't notice... 25% of your population was Hispanic, Latinx, you, you aren't coming to campus. <laughs> so that is such a good point, right? And right. And so take that and then think about the, the campuses in Texas, Texas A&M, right? You know, 60 plus thousand students, right? So we're talking about a lot of people, a lot of students who we, um, I think are, oh, kind of our best kind of thinking through of what does it mean to have for them to have, um, a higher education experience where they feel seen and understood and where they are able to find kind of a rewarding space to be a part of. Right. And I think that that's something for us to think about. Yeah. This isn't a small group of students. I, I appreciate that. That's a good reminder. 25% of your population. Is a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's huge. I mean, to make it easy, you know, math, 10,000 students, this is 2,500 students. 2,500 students is not insignificant, you know, like it's a lot. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, so like, and, and shout out to Texas because Texas is, was one of the leading um, state advocates for the HSI designation. So this work has been going on, right, since the seven, 1970s yeah. um, that, that leaders, you know, college and university leaders from Texas were fighting this fight. They've been they've been trying to get the HSI designation forever. So so you're right. Yeah. Right. This is this is historic. It didn't just happen overnight um, from one day to the next. So it, it's important to acknowledge that. Right. We have yeah. to. And I I always defer to Patrick Valdez's work um, because he tells that narrative. Right. That this didn't just happen overnight. People were advocating for it. There were advocates mm. um, fighting <laughs> the good fight for many years before HSI actually even became a thing. So. So. Yeah. Yep. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta do that work too, and 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 know that Texas was one of the leaders. And Haku, you know, was founded yeah. in, more in, mm -hmm. in Texas. So yeah, work has been going on, you know, a long mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So last few questions for you for, again, thinking about people listening might not have tapped into HSI research. They don't know who the scholars are. Who are some of your, your, you know, main go-tos, your heroes, your sort of HSI scholars that you defer to when you're, you're thinking about how to center your, your, you know, your work within the HSI work? Yeah, I think that's, that's a great question. I always think about, right, kind of how I got here, right? And so I started my dissertation work kind of dabbling in the space and thinking about some of the early HSI work. And so, you know, I talked about, you know, Anne-Marie Nunez and others who had done some of that work. I mean, of course, reading your book was, I think I came out during my dissertation was ferociously reading, <laughs> must read my book. And so, right, so there's all, you know, so I think about all of these amazing, and for me, part of it is, as I think about my own self, my, myself in the space is kind of that cadre of Latina scholars who have build this foundation. And for me, that is meaningful. And I think I always kind of, I gravitate to that space and thinking about this work. But I also think for me, folks who are interested in thinking about HSIs, but also thinking about the ways in which race and racialization forms this work, that really has informed my thinking in terms of this space. And so I think about right some of the work from folks like Christina Mora and others who talk about, about Latinidad, thinking about kind of if you have not read the Afro-Latinx Reader that was edited about a decade ago from Maria Jimenez Roman and, and Juan Flores. Um, I think thinking about that work can be really helpful. So thinking about these 
ways in which we think about HSI and that H in HSI have become really important to my own kind of thinking through and how I center and advance my um, my HSI work, you know, the work of Amalia Dache and Jasmine Haywood, right? That type of thinking about bringing in this Afro-Latinx conversation into conversation with the work around HSIs for me has been really important for kind of pushing that um, in a different direction. So if we want to kind of rethink through some of the H and kind of think about some of that conversation, that's definitely where I go as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely, when I found Christina Mora's book, I was like, yes, I need this. Like, can she write the same exact book for HSI? I, know. <laughs> I, I could see exactly how it could parallel. So Christina, mm-hmm. if you're listening, Dr. Mora. <laughs> you got another book to write right like how the policy came to be right and I and I Mm -hmm. mentioned Patrick Valdez's work because he's written some some stuff about that but not a Mm -hmm. whole book form right her her book was just so important for understanding Mm -hmm. how the term Hispanic came about (laughs) and I and so for me that's always been this tension so how do we understand that within this conversation now of of higher ed literature right and so that to me has been I think a different anchor for me in that space and so that's been um important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, for sure. What about any emerging scholars? Is there anybody like doctoral students you're working with or anybody close to still emerging as HSI scholars that we should sort of watch? Yeah. So I think that's a, this is always great. So I, um, I've had some chance, one kind of set of work that actually came out of that. Is it a topic? Is that a special topic that was the HSI? The AS- some, yeah. They say, don't call oh, it an added. issue. I don't know. Topic. I don't know. Y'all added it up. <laughs> uh, but so I really have, I really enjoy, I really have been enjoying the piece from Blanca Vega and other and colleagues thinking about kind of these, this thinking of racial, how racialization shapes HSI experience. I think that that has been really important to me and thinking about how we start to understand and recenter kind of these different identities. Um, and so I think for me, that's been very helpful in thinking through some of this work. I, um, I really enjoy reading uh, Cynthia Villarreal's work. I think her kind of work, her engagement with this Fronteras kind of conversation for me has been really fun. Um, And so those are two recent works that happen to be in that issue, which there are many others. Everyone should read it all. But I, those are two that recently came out or more recently, and I enjoyed uh, kind of thinking through that work. Um, And so for me, those have been some of the other space. I have to tell you, one of the more exciting things this time around for Ash is going to be going to look. So I read some phenomenal proposals and I am eager to know, um, I think some that I think might be from some early career or uh, emerging scholars. And so I, I'm just excited to kind of think about this space where, where we're kind of complicating uh, the HSI designation in different ways. And so um, I really enjoyed thinking through all of that. And so I'm excited to kind of see where some of this is going. I don't know, I don't know who those folks are yet, right? They were blind, but I am excited to see, to read their and see their work uh, coming up. Absolutely. Both uh, Dr. Vega and Dr. Villarreal will be guests um, because those articles, they were, they're very, important pieces and important moments so yeah AERA opened that that issue um special topic has has really allowed us to to open up this new uh you know space of thinking of like oh these scholars are writing really important critical HSI work and and we need it um so yeah I I I agree those are those are some folks I'm watching too yeah it's been it's been fun to watch those stories and 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 yeah and I think it also just kind of connects others to this conversation in different ways as well so it's been great Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So the final question is kind of fun and some people get stumped by it, but you know, people are tuning in because they want to know what's up HSI. So how do you respond to that? Que pasa HSIs? <laughs> oh, that is it. <laughs> <laughs> On the fly. Pasa HSIs. I don't know. I think it's, it's an exciting time to be an HSI. I think there's a lot of great research that can inform your work. And I think there's a lot of people who want to support that work on campuses. And so I think the thing to think about is who else can you bring to that table? Right. And I think about DEI policy. I'm like, okay, how do you bring in all kind of elements of the campus? And so to me, I think that's something, I think it's an exciting time to be an HSI and to think about, I think there's a, it's complicated. You know, Texas alone makes it, you know, right. State policy, federal policy. It is, it is not without its challenges, but I think there's a lot of exciting research that can inform folks' practice. And I think practitioners have a lot for us to kind of learn as researchers, right? I think there's, and there's a lot of that conversation happening, which to me is really exciting. 
That's it. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I, I concur. Never optimist. People are saying he said it. Like it is not all. I'm like it is not. I will not say it's all doom and gloom. I just won't. It's just not me, right? It is. There's got to be something good here, and I think there is, and I think there are people who care deeply. And so for me, there's always it's a glass half full kind of conversation for me. <laughs> Yes, bugs and bugs and folks, but I'm okay with it. You know, I, I think that's I tell folks I do critical research, right? Like when I write, I'm you know I'm I'm looking for, um, and I am pushing us to do more, right? Like I am mm-hmm. pushing for institutions to do more, um, but I do that work because I believe there's space to do more, and so I don't do critical work for the sake of critique. I do critical work because I really think we all want to do more. And it's about providing some space and maybe some avenues for folks to think about what it means to quote unquote do more. And so to me, you have to have that optimistic. And if the goal is to kind of sit back and address some of our structures that have hindered some of our successes. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we brought you to be a guest on Que Pasa HSIs. The optimism optimism (laughs) is, is, is important, right. As part of this work, otherwise we ain't going to do it. So, so thank you for bringing that. And thank you for bringing that energy and that optimism uh, to the episode today. And thank you for being a guest. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I always love talking about HSIs and I love, I love that this is going to be a space for conversation. So I'm excited to hear all the episodes for Que Pasa HSI. It's going to be wonderful. Welcome to Que Pasa HSIs, a podcast dedicated to everything Hispanic serving institutions. I'm your host, Dr. Gina Ann Garcia, bringing you the news on what's happening in HSIs. Join us as we explore the history and evolution of HSIs, culturally relevant and liberatory practices, current and emerging research with HSIs, and the policies that shape servingness.